Morning, Roy. <laughs> Morning, Bill. Bill, them are some mighty fine boots. <laughs> yes, sir, Roy. I just got them this morning. Pretty snazzy, huh? Real snazzy. What'd you pay for them? Oh, pretty penny, but well worth it. Well, Bill Bradley, what is on your feet? Good, good, good morning, Miss Claire. I got myself a brand new pair of boots. Brand new pair of boots? Why, Bill? You're high class now. So will you let me escort you to the mercantile? That'd certainly be an honor. Oh, boy. Miss Claire never let me walk with her like that. Did Bill buy them new boots just to impress her? That low-down, rotten scoundrel. That's playing dirty. That's playing dirtier than dirty. I gotta get me some boots so Miss Claire will notice me. I ain't got enough money to pay a dog to howl. I gotta get me some new boots. Howdy, Bill. Howdy, Roy. Now, Bill, them are some nice boots you got there. Yes, I believe they are, Roy. Now, Bill, can you climb to the top of the water tower in them boots? Now, what would I want to do that for? Well, can you climb to the top of the water tower in them fancy, shiny boots or not? Probably, but not wearing these boots. I could do it barefoot. Barefoot? No, I don't believe you. You calling me a liar? Well, can you or can't you? I'll show you. Roy, Roy, get, get, get back here, Roy. Bill Bradley, oh. what are you doing climbing that tree? Sheriff, you get out of here. Sheriff, Roy done run off with my boots, Sheriff. You can tell me the whole story in jail, Bill. Doggone it. Hello, Miss Claire. Good morning, Roy. Those are some mighty fine boots you got on. Ain't they just... They look a lot small for you. Oh, they'll stretch out. Mighty fine boots you got there, Roy. Where'd you get them? Uh, Sheriff, uh, I found them. That's so? That's so. Mighty fine boots you got there, Bill. Oh, they're more trouble than they're <laughs> worse, Sheriff. Good morning. Our series is called Pack and Heat, and we're exploring anger and why anger is such an issue in our culture today. My guess is if you move around very much, you see a lot of angry people. And it could be that, like me, you wrestle with some anger in your own life, and you're kind of wondering, why is it that I'm mad uh, too much of the time, and and what causes me to be angry? Today, in, in the message, I'm going to share with you what I think is one of the most important reasons why people are angry today and how to deal with it and how to beat it. So I'm glad you're here for the next few minutes. You're going to learn, I believe, an awful lot as we explore anger. Now, 
What happens, I think, what causes a lot of us to be angry is that it doesn't take you very long in this world to look at life and say, you know, this, this world is a rough place and people play nasty. And we begin to ask ourselves a question, and this starts real early in life, even in childhood, I believe, am I going to be all right? Because, you know, people, you know, it's a, it's a dog-eat-dog, you know, cutthroat world out there. Am I going to have all the resources that I need to make it through? And so what happens at that moment when we ask that question, we, we begin to live in one of two ways. And, and whichever way we choose is going to have a great bearing, maybe, maybe 100% of the bearing on whether or not we live as an angry person or we live at peace. Remember last week I shared with you that the opposite of anger is peace. If you're angry, you're not at peace. And if you're at peace, you're not angry. So whichever, whichever path of life that you choose is going to determine whether you live in anger or peace. And let's go back to this, this idea that the world is a rough place and am I going to have what it takes to make it. What happens a lot of times is we start looking at life like a pie. You know, this is a peach pie my wife got for me to bring up here today. And, and I'm just realizing how hungry that I am. Um, and so we start looking at life like a pie. And, and our concern is, are we going to be able to get our slice are we going to be able to have enough to live in the house that we want to live in? Are we going to have the career that we want to have? Are we going to be able to get our slice of the pie? And so the first way of living is we're saying to ourselves, I'm going to do what it takes to get my slice. But, you know, when you start trying to get your slice of the pie, one of the things that you learn real quickly is you learn that there are other people trying to get your slice. It's a race to get your slice of the pie. Some of you may be in a career environment right now in which you are stressed to the max, wondering if you're going to be able to get a job, keep your job, and beyond that, if you're going to be able to hold on to what you have because you have learned that, you know, the slice that you want is a slice that a lot of other people want. And so you're, you're living life, if you're in this category, you're living life to get your piece of the pie, to hold on to your piece of the pie, and to live life in such a way that you're going to be okay. Now, here's the deal. If that's how I choose to live my life, if I'm saying I'm going to get my slice of the pie, I'm going to find a way to get a hold of it, and then I'm going to find a way to hold on to it because other people are trying to get my piece of the pie. If that's how I live my life, I'm going to live in this number one way. Oh, there is some pie on the bottom of that pan. I love that. I'm going to do that every Sunday. <laughs> if that's how you live your life, you're going to live in this first way. Let's just say it's insecurity. And the reason why it's insecurity is you don't feel secure. You're going after your piece of the pie. You're trying to get it. You're trying to get the recognition. You're trying to be attractive enough to compare favorably with other women or other men or whatever, other kids at school. And so you're, you're living in insecurity. You know, am I going to be able to get my piece of the pie? Am I going to be able to hold on to the pie that I get? If you live that way, the result will be anger. Because here's the thing. If you're trying to get your own piece of the pie and hold on to it, there are going to be people who are going to take your piece of the pie. There are going to be people that elbow you out of the way, and you're never going to be able to get it. And the result will be anger. I am convinced that is why Americans are so angry. We are all trying to get our piece of the pie. I've been studying and reading and researching and, and watching, you know, programs about anger for months now. And yesterday, I was kind of scrolling through some stuff that I recorded back in December. And I was watching an interview on Fox News, and I really wish I had this interview for you, but let me just do my best to try to tell you what, what it is. It's just sort of a gruesome story, and I apologize for the gruesome nature of it. But this was, this was back in, I think it was on December 12th that this was aired. 
And what happened was, back in 96, there was a, a, a teenage girl, I think she was like 18 years old, 19 years old, beautiful young woman. Her dad was a real estate magnate, and she was driving his Porsche in California, and I guess she lost control of, of her car and ran off the road and hid an embankment and just, you know, mangled the Porsche. And, and again, I apologize for the graphic nature of this, but she was decapitated. And uh, someone in the California Highway Department, this was against procedure, but somebody leaked that photo and it got out onto the internet and people began to, to, to share it around. And the family was doing everything they could to avoid these gruesome pictures. But you know, you know how, how people are today. And, and somebody sent this photo to the dad under the guise of a real estate listing. And since he was in the real estate business, he clicked and opened it up. And there was this horrible picture of the mangled body of his daughter. And, and the anchor was asking a psychologist, a criminal psychologist on the show, why are people so angry today? Why, why, you know, and, if you, and if you read the blogosphere, I mean, you, this will take you long to read a lot of threads, or maybe if you just even read responses to articles in the Eagle, isn't it amazing how angry people are today? And this psychiatrist, I thought he had a really good take on this. He said what it is today, he said kids today grow up in a very narcissistic culture. There is this sense of I've got to get mine. I've got to be more attractive or as attractive as everybody else. And, and he said that a lot of kids today, they have this idea, am I one up or am I one down? And because of envy and because they feel like they're not, you know, compared to everybody else favorably, they become very angry and they pour out the kind of stuff that was on, that, on, that, uh, on the Internet, you know, people s- sending those photos. That's what happens when we say, I'm going to get my piece of the pie. And many of us who are Christ followers, that's, that's how we're living. I mean, we love God and we have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And we read our Bibles and we love worship services and all that. But when we walk out of this place, it's like we just, you know, go into the phone booth and we come out another person on Monday morning and we're saying, I've got to get my piece of the pie. And more than that, I've got to hold on to it. I'm going to make sure I'm not training my replacement. I am going to get my piece of the pie. And I love you enough to tell you this morning that if that's how you live, you're going to be angry because there are always going to be people who come take part of your pie. There are going to be people that deny your piece of the pie. You're going to work hard for pie and somebody else is going to get the pie. You will be an angry person if you live that way. The other way, the Bible's always trying to get us to live this way. You know, the Bible says this over and over and over, and it's called living by faith. Living by faith says... I do live in a nasty world. It is a broken world. People are fighting, scratching, clawing. Somebody is going to take my pie. But my confidence is not in my ability to obtain pie. My confidence is in God. And they're always baking more pie in heaven. So if somebody comes and gets my piece of the pie, that is okay. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to do my best. But I am going to love people. And I'm going to love God. And my confidence is in him. If you live that way, you can live at peace. Even if somebody comes and steals your piece of the pie and eats it right in front of you, you can still, you can still be at peace because your confidence is in God. With that in mind, I want to ask you two questions as we start out today's message that will help us to frame our understanding of, of what we're going to talk about about anger today. My first question I want to ask you is, how big is your world? Is there room for other people in your world? First of all, is there room for other people like you? People that are just honest people, just trying to make it. People that you, you look at in your world and maybe even consider a friend. But going back to what that psychologist said, we have some problems every once in a while with one-upmanship because is it okay with you if somebody who is your friend gets something that you've been wanting? What if you're working together in the same work environment and you know you got a best friend there and a promotion is coming up and she gets the promotion and you don't get it? Does that change the way you feel about her? 
If you're back here trying to get your own piece of the pie, it will mess you up. How many of you have experienced something in your life, somebody who was your friend, somebody who liked you, somebody that you loved, all of a sudden they just begin to treat you differently and you start cataloging all your actions and words and you're thinking, what did I ever do to hurt that person? Always watch for this. Because with so many people, their world is not big enough. If you get something they've been wanting, if you get a new car, they have a hard time being happy about that. Because you have a piece of the pie that they didn't get. I got an awesome lesson about this when I was 11 years old in sixth grade back in Texas. I may have told the story before because it's just such, it's so big. I I still think about it all the time. Um, There was a kid in the sixth grade with me in my class in, in elementary school and we used to say that we were best friends, and we were best friends. And we used to even say that we were cousins. Now, that wasn't strictly true, but it was close. His uncle married my aunt. And so we just we hung together all the time. His name was David Henderson. He was this outgoing, gregarious kid, good athlete. Everybody loved David. It was impossible not to love him. He just was such an outgoing kid. Well, <clears throat> I should tell you real quickly that the way to have status, if you were a guy in the, in the elementary school where I was, and in those days we had first through sixth grade in the same school, if you wanted to have status, you were what we called a patrol boy. You wore a belt, you know, it went across the shoulder and around the waist, and on that belt was this huge badge. And, and we were really assigned some pretty, you know, some pretty big things. We actually had to go cordon off busy streets, stuff that nobody would let an you know, 11-year-old kid do today, but we had to stretch barricades across busy streets on both ends to secure the road so that kids could walk across the street. I mean, we had big chores. And so, you know, it was really big stuff to be a patrol boy. Only the kids with the best grades and only the kids with the best citizenship, you know, could, could be a patrol boy. So at the beginning of a sixth grade year, Miss Odell, who was the sponsor for the patrol boy, she came to me and she said, could you be a patrol boy? And I wanted to do it, but our family schedule just didn't allow for it because you had to be there early and stay late after school. And I said, no, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to turn it down. David, on the other hand, became a patrol boy. Now, there were probably about 10 patrol boys in our school. Almost all the badges were just silver, but there were two badges that were set apart from the others. One had a red inset, that was the lieutenant, and one had a blue inset, that was the captain badge. David was captain. I mean, he was the biggest man on campus because he had the blue, you know, blue inset in his patrol boy badge. So <clears throat> I wasn't surprised. Everybody loved David. He was a gregarious, outgoing kid. The fact that he was captain of the patrol boys, that was, that was, that was just normal. But we had six-week six periods back in those grading periods, and at the end of the six, first six weeks, I was kind of looking over my report card and stuff, and all of a sudden, David came and burst in the room. It was after school. He grabbed me by the arm, and he said, come with me. I said, where are we going? He said, we're going to see Miss Odell. And so he, he took me in, and, and he, he, told, he told our supervisor, he said, I got a D on my report card. And he knew instantly that was it. No more, no more patrol boy for, for David. And he said, I want Mark... I want Mark to take my place. And she said, well, that's fine. You know, that's, that's fine with me because I want him to be a patrol boy anyway. And David said, I'm not finished yet. I want him to have my badge. And Miss Odell said, well, that might be a little issue for the other patrol boys for a person just to jump from not being a patrol boy to captain. And David said, I don't care. I want Mark to have my badge. Somewhere in my mementos, there's a little miniature badge that was given to me as an award. It's got a blue inset because I served as captain of the patrol boys all year long because a friend said, I can't have this anymore, but I want my friend to have it. 
I'm asking you, do you have that kind of room in your life? Is it okay with you if somebody like you gets blessed in a way that you don't get blessed? If somebody that is your friend is better looking than you are, they get a better house than you get, they get nicer clothes than you get, is your world big enough to enjoy the blessings of people like you? Well, that was the slow pitch, and a lot of you hit it. You said, yeah, man, I love it, man. You know, if somebody I love, they get more than I do, I go to their party, I rejoice, I have a good time with them. How do you deal with it when somebody gets blessed more than you and that person is not someone you like? Maybe someone who has hurt you. Maybe someone that you would consider an enemy. Is your world still big enough for that person to be blessed? See, a lot of us are okay with that first question. We say, oh, and we say, yeah, I guess it's all right if a friend gets more than I get. But what happens when an enemy gets more than you get? In the Bible, Jesus kept saying one thing over and over, and I think it's the deepest thing in the Bible. People always talk about getting deep in the Word. Let me show you. This is the deepest thing I've ever found. In Luke 6.35, just one of the occasions where Jesus said, Love your enemies and do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great, and you'll be truly acting as children of the Most High, for he is kind to those who are unthankful. Listen, God is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. Some of you, you, you're living life in a particular way in which you say, you know what, I, I don't feel bad about treating bad people badly. And yet God says, love your enemies. Love those who hurt you. For a long time when I read that in the Bible, I had the idea that the Lord cared more about my enemies than he cared about me. Because how could I love people who hurt me? But there are two reasons why God wants you to be good to the people who have been bad to you. Number one reason is because it will keep you from living an angry life. Listen to me, please. If you ever listen to a minister talk, would you please listen to me for the next few seconds? You can be a Christ follower. But if you're angry at people who have hurt you, that will keep you busy the rest of your life. Because we live in a cruddy world. We live in a world where people will take your piece of the pie. We live in a world where people will elbow you out of the way. That is going to happen. You will have people who don't like you. You will have people who are out to sink you. That is going to happen. If you decide that you're going to be bad to the people who are bad to you, that will keep you busy all your life, and you'll be an angry person. And you'll say, but I'm a Christ follower, and I go to church, and I read my Bible, and I pray. But you know what you're doing? You're protesting all the time that people have treated you badly. The second reason why it's important for us to love our enemies is that God loves our enemies. You know, God has room for all kinds of people. In John 14, 2, Jesus said this to his disciples. In my Father's house, there is plenty of room. See, what happens in our world, a lot of times there's not very much room. There's not even room for people like us. And there's sure not room for people who who don't, you know, who hurt us. And yet Jesus said, in my Father's house, there is plenty of room. This is what is killing the average church in America today. It It is a place just for Christians. It's a place where the religious elite go to get another layer of lacquer on themselves. It's a a place for people to go to hear a minister tell them what they already know. But God forbid that somebody should show up who's not sure that they believe in God or not sure that they believe in the Bible. That's why New Spring is such a different kind of church. Let me just tell you, you you may be here today and you say, Mark, as far as I'm concerned, I'm an atheist. I want you to know we are glad you're at New Spring Church today. In fact, you're what gets us up in the morning. God loves the world, and he's got lots of room. 
I want to take you to a great story in the Bible. It's in Luke chapter 15, and some of you who are like Bible students right out of the box, you know this is the chapter of the Bible that contains the story that we call the prodigal son. And what's happened is Jesus is explaining to people, because there have been some critics who came and they say, there's some really bad people hanging around you, Jesus, you need to get rid of them. And Jesus is trying to tell them there's a lot of room in the father's house. And he tells the story, and in the story, and and, and I'm not going to read the part that you probably know the best, he tells the story about a rich guy who had two sons. The rich guy is like a type or a picture of God. But this rich farmer had two sons. The older son would, would, by the laws of primogeniture or the laws of the firstborn, he would have received at the father's death two-thirds of his estate. The younger son would have received one-third of his father's estate. Now, the older son was kind of a by-the-book kind of guy, and I mean, he did his job, he did his work. He was like doing what he was expected to do because he knew someday his dad would die and his dad would give him two-thirds of the estate. So he was kind of a button-down, wingtip kind of guy. He just did what he was supposed to do. Man, the younger kid was a mess. He was undisciplined. He didn't like farm work. He chafed under the idea that he had to do what his father wanted him to do. So one day he went to his dad and he said, Dad, I don't want to wait till you die to get my money. I want you to give me my inheritance right now. What a cruddy thing to say. And so the father did it. Amazingly, the father turned over one-third of his estate to this undisciplined kid. And the Bible indicates that what happened, the father turned it over to him in in various resources like real estate and cattle. And the boy didn't have good business sense. He just went out and liquidated everything that his dad gave him. He got pennies on the dollar, but even that was enough money to party hardy. So he went as far as he could get from home. He squandered his inheritance on hookers and, and, you know, shooting up and drinking and getting high and having parties. And he finally blew through all the cash. And when he did, nobody would hire him. I mean, after all, he wasn't exactly a stellar worker with a big resume. And the only job he could get was feeding hogs. And there in the squalor and the filth of his condition, he began to remember how good it was to live back at home. And and there lying in the hog pen, he got a clue. And he said, I'm going to go home to my dad. And I'm going to say, Dad, I'm not fit to be a kid, your son anymore. Just hire me. Just hire me like one of the, hire me like one of the bunk hands. Just hire me like, you know, one of, the, one of the guys that just works for you. And I'll sleep out in the bunkhouse and I won't be a son anymore. But would you just give me a job? Because nobody would give him a job. But the dad, remember who represents God, he saw the boy coming a long way off, filthy, dirty, stinky, messed up, a life screwed up so many ways that he couldn't even catalog it. But the dad saw the boy coming and he was so excited to see him that the father ran and put his arms around his neck and the boy's trying to make his speech and he's saying, dad, I don't deserve to be a son, just make me one of your hands. Dad said, I'm not going to have any of that. He called for the best robe and said, put it on my boy's shoulders. And he took his ring off his finger, which was like signing the checks kind of thing. And he put it on the boy's finger. And he said, hey, we got a stalled calf that we've been saving for a big barbecue. I want you to bring him out. I want you to, we're going to have a party. My son is home. That's the part of the prodigal story that we love. And usually we put a period right there. I do because I don't want to take the story any further. But remember, Jesus is telling the story, and the way Jesus is telling the story, it's not about the boy we just talked about. This story is about this kid's older brother. Let's read that together, beginning in verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Isn't it bad when you have to ask somebody what a party is? I mean, this guy... I had issues. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. 
The older brother, here's our word. This is the second time in two weeks that we've seen this happen with a brother. The older brother became, what's the next word? Angry, packing heat. And he refused. That's, remember, trip number, number two. Stop number two is stubbornness. He refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But he didn't have that many. Verse 30. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, you know what the problem with the story of the prodigal son is? To a lot of us, the older brother makes a whole lot of sense. Because after all, I mean, why should his dad treat his younger brother who's messed up so badly? And for many of us, that's how we live our lives. And in our lives, we have a sense of justice. And when somebody violates that sense of justice, we're like the brother of the prodigal son. Because after all, here's a party going on. And, and I don't know, I mean, I, I would have liked to have been at that party because after all, there was barbecue, there was uh, potato salad, I mean, there was chocolate cake and homemade ice cream, shrimp cocktail. I know it's in the Greek, you have to read in between there. All my favorites are at this party. Listen, let me tell you something. When the food is good, I don't like to miss a party. And this boy, I mean, this older brother, he could have been gone in there. He could have celebrated. He could have said, man, my brother is home. This is awesome. Isn't this a great party? But instead of going in, he went out and he launched a one-man protest. I think he was hoping that others would join his protest. I mean, his dad came out and said, son, we got a party going on. You need to come inside. It's time to celebrate. Your brother has come home. He's saying, I'm not going in. I'm going to sit out here because it's not fair. Some of us are right there today. I mean, God has given us a wonderful life. There are people that don't enjoy their marriages, don't enjoy their kids, don't enjoy the blessings that they have because sometime, someplace, somebody was not fair to them. Let me tell you, that's the world we live in. Somebody's going to get your piece of pie. Somebody's going to eat it right in front of you. That is going to happen. And if you're trying to live that way by insecurity, you will be an angry person and you'll walk around with your sign saying, it's not fair. And you're always looking for somebody to listen to you so that you can tell them life is not fair. Can I tell you something? If you live in this way, you may get some people around you, but after a while, you'll get sick of them. Because what you'll get is you'll get other people who are walking around with signs. I'll tell you what, I'm not going to protest with you. I don't want to miss the party. That's what happened with this boy. He was saying, this is not fair. And he missed the party. As we close out today, there are, there are four things that I want to give you that are so important. And I, I just pray that the Lord will help us to really understand these things. Because if we get these four things, we can whip anger in our lives. Here we go. If you've got notes, you might just want to take these down. Number one, the Bible teaches this in the book of Psalm 75, verse 6. Promotion comes from God. The Bible says promotion doesn't come from the east or the west or the south, but promotion comes from God. That particular psalm was written in the days of King Hezekiah when Israel was in great jeopardy, Judah was in great jeopardy, and they were hoping that some ally would come and help them. But this prophet, this psalmist, wrote these wonderful words, promotion doesn't come from the south or the east or the west, but promotion comes from God. 
Some of us are so messed up trying to know the right people. You know, you gotta, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And we're trying to know the right person. We're trying to say the right words. We're acting in ways that we don't even agree with. But it's in hopes that somebody will come along and promote us and lift us up. Can I tell you, that's a terrible way to live. The Bible says promotion comes from the Lord your God. Let me tell you something. Somebody can come and eat your pie. Somebody can eat it right in front of your face. Take away everything you have and God can bake you another pie. You know that? I have lived that. I know by, for a fact that God can do that. Listen, if somebody hurts you, somebody can mess up your marriage. Somebody can mess up your life 12 different ways. But you remember this, promotion comes from God. And, and you know what? You can know all the right people, and, and if God decides not to promote you, you won't be promoted. Everybody can hate your guts around you, but if God decides to promote you, he can lift you up right in front of all of them. Promotion comes from God. Here's number two. You don't have time or energy to beat all your competitors. We live in a world today where people like tend to look around and say, okay, who's my competition here? You will waste your life if you try to beat all your competitors. New competitors will come all the time. You don't have to beat your, all your competitors. You don't have time to beat all your competitors. You don't have the energy to be, beat all your competitors. You just do what God has called you to do. In my college days... I remember reading a story that was, actually it was part of a speech that a, a Christian physician had made to a Kiwanis group in Florida. And this particular physician told about going to a, a high school track meet in Florida, and he said that the word was out, and it was in all the papers, that the record, state record for the mile was going to go down because there was an especially good runner, and so people came from far and near to watch this mile run to see this kid, see if he could beat the, the state record. So here this doctor was up in the stands, and he's looking at the kids as they line up and get ready to run. And sure enough, there's the boy that everybody's thing is going to, you know, break the record. He's athletic. He's muscular. You can see he's got the physique of a, of a long-distance runner. And, and, you know, he's down there. He's, he's warming up and getting ready. He's stretching, and all the eyes are on him. And there are like two or three other boys that they look pretty similar to that, too. You can tell they're runners. But he said at the end of the, at the, end of the line, he said there was this clear, kid who clearly didn't belong there. He's a little spindle-legged boy, hollow-chested kid. And he said he, he wondered what he was doing out there getting ready to run the mile. Pow, gun sounded, they were off. And sure enough, man, all eyes, that were, you know, all eyes were on this boy that was going to break the record, and he did break the record. I mean, he broke it in front of everybody. Everybody was cheering, and the other boys finished, you know, as you would think they would, fairly close to that. But, you know, they in second place and third place and so on. But this doctor said, my eyes weren't on those boys. He said, my eyes were on the kid at the end of the line. Because he said, sure, sure enough, he, he didn't belong out there. He fell a you know, quarter lap behind, and he fell a half lap behind, and he fell a full lap behind the other boys. And after the race had been, you know, the winner had won the race. And, 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 and you know, after, after clearly, you know, the race had taken its normal course, then people just started doing different stuff. Actually, some of the hands began to put hurdles on the track. And the voice, the guy who was announcing on the PA system, he said, get those hurdles off the track. The race is not over. And sure enough, that little spindle-legged, hollow-chested kid was still running out there on the track, even though everybody else was off. And I don't know, I mean, if sweat got in his eyes or whatever, but 
he must have been he must have lost his ability to see clearly because he he got kind of got off track and he, and he and he hit the the curb at the edge of the track and he tripped and he came down and banged his head on the curb and he he was bleeding and so this doctor of course concerned for this kid rushed out of the stands and ran down there to him and he made sure that the boy wasn't seriously hurt and so you know, he got the boy sitting on the curb and he he asked him he said uh, son what are you doing in this race and the boy said, well, you're right. I really don't belong here. He said, I'm the, I'm the trainer. I'm the manager for the team. And he said, we have a real good miler, but he got sick. He got the flu, and he couldn't be here. And my coach promised that we'd have an entry in every event. And he came to me, and he said, I want you to run the mile. He said, I've never run any track event in my life, but my coach sent me in here, and, and I'm running. And, and so the doctor said, well, son, that, that's, that's really noble, and, and that's really, really, really good. But he said, i got one more question for you. Said after the race was won and everybody else crossed the tape, why didn't you quit? And this boy's words stayed with this doctor for a long time, and they've stayed with me for a long time. The boy said, Sir, my coach didn't send me in to beat everybody else. My coach sent me in to run the mile, and I ran the mile. You don't have to beat all your opposition. You don't have to beat all your competitors. You don't have to be better looking than everybody else. You don't have to be richer than everybody else. You don't have to have the nicest car. You don't have to have the best boat of everybody who works, works in your group. You don't need to beat all your competition. You just need to do what God has put you in this world to do. That takes me to number three. Nobody can take your God-given destiny away from you. I mean, that's what scares us, isn't it? I mean, we're, we're concerned. I mean, life is rough. People are tough. It's a dog-eat-dog world. We're concerned that somebody is going to come along and pull our destiny away from us. I want to tell you something. The only way that anybody could take your destiny away from you, they would have to pry it out of the hands of Almighty God, and nobody can do that. I'm talking to some of you right now, and, and you're feeling like you're saying, Mark, I believed you a lot of times, but this is one time where you're wrong. Because I have my destiny, and somebody took it away. Are you sure they took away your God-given destiny, or did they take away what you thought your destiny was? This was a week of celebration for me. I mean, at least a week of, of, of looking back, because on Friday, Mary Alice and I and our family have been at New Spring for 23 years. I can remember it was a hot day, June 6, 1985, when we came into town. And I thought about that some this week. But you know, of course, that I'm not from Kansas. I am a Texan. I know and that Texans are insufferable, but that, that is, I, I am from Texas. I did not think my destiny would be in Kansas. When I graduated from college at the age of 22, I was called to a church in Houston. I loved Houston. I still love Houston. It's the biggest city in Texas. It's noisy. It's a melting pot. People come from all over the world to work in Houston, and I love being at Houston. And I went to this church. The pastor was 40 years older than I, and he had some emotional and mental health issues, and he just, like, turned everything over to me at 22. I preached. I led worship. I wrote, I wrote you know, small group material. I oversaw every aspect of the ministry. I performed nearly every wedding. I preached nearly every funeral. I mean, and, and it was one of those things that was just almost like magic. I mean, the people just loved us, even to this day. In fact, I went back to hold the services, the funeral service of our chairman of deacons just a few months ago. And I've been gone since 79. It was a wonderful time, and people loved us. And I looked at that, and I said, my destiny is here in Houston. I loved it. But as I said a few moments ago, the pastor, 
had some emotional and, and, and mental health issues. And I didn't understand things as well at the time. I just knew this guy set out to destroy me. I mean, I would have done anything for him. If he had asked me to go to the top of the building and jump off, I think I would have done it. I I loved him. I respected him. I mean, just whatever he asked me to do, I just did it out of joy. And yet, all of a sudden, this guy that I had so much love and respect for, I guess he was concerned that perhaps I was going to take things away from him or maybe he was just struggling with aging. And thankfully, that's all been, you know, God worked that out through years. And actually, I I preached his funeral service a few years back. But he set out to destroy me, sometimes even publicly. And because he was treating me badly in public, the, the people began to like rush to my defense. And my father taught me many things as a pastor. But one thing he taught me was you never, you never harm a church. And so very quietly, Mary Alice and I just said, hey, God is leading us to another place. And we went on to serve another ministry. I was only there for a little less than two years. Do you know what I was thinking? Driving back from Houston to Fort Worth. You know what I was thinking. Somebody has taken my destiny away from me. I thought I knew what it was. I'm going to be in Houston. I'm going to, but here's the deal. God had other plans for me, didn't he? I wouldn't be here today if it hadn't been for that. God had a destiny for me in another place, in a place I could have never dreamed. As crazy as it sounds, I actually love Kansas. I know to some of you transplants, you're going to try to put me in a lie detector test on this one, but it's the truth. I love Wichita. I mean, it's my, I mean, I love this place. And God only knows how much I love New Spring Church. I want to tell you something today. Nobody can take your God-given destiny away from you because God is always baking more pie. Number four. The happiest people in the world are people who promote others. You know, we, we, we live in a world today where it's so easy to like pull in and say, okay, I got to be careful here. If anybody's going to get ahead, it's got to be me. I got to promote myself. I got to come off looking cool. I got to come off looking important. If I don't, people will ignore me. That is the way to be angry and miserable all the time. If you want to be happy, here's how to be happy. Promote other people. Listen, you'll never have any lack of work. Because it, 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 you know, there are always people that need to be encouraged. I have worked with two chief executives, and I've partnered with a couple of chief executives for the years, both of them in highly competitive environments. Both of these guys are now in their 70s, and, and they, were, they did something that I don't think I've ever seen anybody else do. They were constantly promoting other people. I mean, you know, if, they, if, if, they, if you talk to them about their staff, they would say, man, I have the greatest staff in the world. This, this, see that woman over there? Boy, she's just, the, she's just the best person you ever saw. I mean, I can't believe that we are so blessed to have her. And there's that guy over there. Man, he's just awesome. And whoever they talk about, I mean, they talk about other people all the time, constantly promoting other people. Those two guys are the happiest guys I know. And people love them. And it's like they never come out behind. Anything they need is always there. You want to be happy? Promote other people. Encourage other people. Remember what Jesus said, in my Father's house, there's plenty of room. In this world, there's plenty of room for you. There's room for people like you. There's even room for people who are your enemies. Because never forget, folks, God is always baking pie. God can take care of you. Nobody can take your God-given destiny away from you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for what you've taught us today through your word. And Father, so many of us today, we could deal with anger if we would just realize 
that we don't have to scratch and claw and beat other people. All we need to do is just be faithful to your plan for our lives. Father, I'm talking to somebody today. They're protesting parties because they feel like life is not fair. Father, please deliver them from that. Give them the power to overcome that. And Father, I pray that you would just make us a people who live at peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Still praying with me, please. A couple of times in this message, I've given you John 14, 2, where Jesus said to his disciples, this was the night before he died on the cross. Jesus said, in my Father's house, that's heaven, there's plenty of room. Do you know, if you don't go to heaven, it won't be because God doesn't want you there. It won't be because God didn't make room for you. There is a place in heaven, I believe, for you. You say, Mark, how do I get to heaven? Do I join the church? Do I get baptized? Do I do yard work here at the church? How do, how do, I, how do I get into heaven? It's a gift. A gift. Here's what the Bible says. You and I are sinners. If we pay for our sins ourselves, we're going to wind up in hell. Hell wasn't made for us. It was made for Satan and his demons. So God loved us enough that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus, who came into our world, lived the life that we can't live, lay on a Roman cross, and for six hours he hung between heaven and earth on a cross, and the blood that came out of his body, the way God looked at it, paid for every sin you and I ever have committed or ever will commit. You say, Mark, you don't know how bad my sin is. You don't know how powerful the blood of Jesus is. Because the Bible says it cleanses all sin. How do you... How do you access a gift? There's only one way. You accept it. If you try to earn it, you'll mess it up. You just receive it. If you've never invited Jesus Christ into your life, I'm going to pray a prayer. I'll pray it slowly so that you can think about it. Because what matters is that you mean it in your heart. The word's not what's important. It's just that you mean this in your heart. So if you want to receive Jesus as your Savior today, think about these words and you pray them in your heart. Jesus, I know I've done wrong, but I believe your blood paid for my sin. I receive you as my Savior. I receive you as my King. Save me. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer with me today, I'd like to ask you to just take your worship folder. Half of it's detachable. If you would, just put your name and address on there, and you just check the box that says, I prayed with you. Uh, I have a gift I want to give you. It's a packet. In the packet, there's some DVDs and information that help you understand better what it means to know Christ and follow him. It's your gift. It will not cost you a penny. If you'll put your address on there, you can drop this in the offering plate in a few moments or in the boxes at the back door or the bottom of the staircase. If it's got your address, I'll mail it to you. If you're like me and you don't like to wait, you don't have to. Just detach this, bring it back straight through the middle there to guest services or New Spring store. And you just you don't have to make a speech or anything. Just say, I prayed with Mark. You can give it, give the card to whoever the attendant is, and they will give you this, and you can take it home today. So glad you're here. Next week, the title is called Duel. Have you ever seen two angry people just go at each other? Say, yeah, I'm marking the car on the way over here. Uh, <laughs> we're going to talk about what it's like when you have two angry people talking to each other. Next week, it's Duel. We're going we're gonna to learn a whole lot. I'm so glad you're